Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Today we have a collection of short H.P. Lovecraft stories, beginning with Azathoth and followed by Salafaeus. Both stories are dream-type stories, more science fiction than horror. Azathoth is the beginning of a never-completed novel written by Lovecraft in June of 1922 and published as a fragment in the journal Leaves in 1938 after Lovecraft's death. Both Azathoth and Salafaeus are great examples of Lovecraft's literary style. We hope you enjoy them. When age fell upon the world, and wonder went out of the minds of men, when gray cities reared to smoky skies, tall towers grim and ugly, in whose shadow none might dream of the sun or of the spring's flowering meads, when learning stripped the earth of her mantle of beauty, and poets sang no more save of twisted phantoms seen with bleared and inward-looking eyes, when these things had come to pass, and childish hopes had gone forever, there was a man who traveled out of life on a quest into spaces whither the world's dreams had fled. Of the name and abode of this man little is written, for they were of the waking world only. Yet it is said that both were obscure. It is enough to say that he dwelt in a city of high walls where sterile twilight reigned, that he toiled all day among shadow and turmoil, coming home at evening to a room whose one window opened not to open fields and groves, but on to a dim court where other windows stared in dull despair. From that casement one might see only walls and windows, except sometimes when one leaned so far out and peered at the small stars that passed and because mere walls and windows must soon drive a man to madness, who dreams and reads much, the dweller in that room used night after night to lean out and peer aloft to glimpse some fragment of things beyond the waking world and the tall cities. After years he began to call the slow-sailing stars by name, and to follow them in fancy when they glided regretfully out of sight, till at length his vision opened to many secret vistas whose existence no common eye suspected and one night a mighty gulf was bridged, and the dream-haunted skies swelled down to the lonely watcher's window to merge with the close air of his room and to make him a part of their fabulous wonder. There came to that room wild streams of violet midnight glittering with dust of gold, vortices of dust and fire, swirling out the ultimate spaces and heavy perfumes from beyond the worlds. Opiate oceans poured there, Litten by suns that the eye may never behold, and having in their whirlpools strange dolphins and sea nymphs of unrememberable depths. Noiseless infinity eddied around the dreamer and wafted him away without touching the body that leaned stiffly from the lonely window. 
and for days not counted in men's calendars the tides of far spheres that bore him gently to join the course of other cycles that tenderly left him sleeping on a green sunrise shore, a green shore fragrant with lotus blossoms, and starred by red camelites. We'll return with our second story, Celephaeus, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Celephaeus. This next story, Celephaeus, is another dream-like story, much like Azathoth, a story in which Lovecraft's mastery of the written word is plainly evident. And now, Celephaeus. In a dream, Coronis saw the city in the valley, and the seacoast beyond, and the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor toward distant regions where the sea meets the sky. In a dream it was also that he came by his name of Coronis, for when awake he was called by another name. Perhaps it was natural for him to dream a new name, for he was the last of his family, and alone among the indifferent millions of London, so there were not many to speak to him and to remind him who he had been. His money and lands were gone, and he did not care for the ways of the people about him, but preferred to dream and write of his dreams. What he wrote was laughed at by those to whom he showed it, so that after a time he kept his writings to himself, and finally ceased to write. The more he withdrew from the world about him, the more wonderful became his dreams, and it would have been quite futile to try to describe them on paper. Coronis was not modern, and did not think like others who wrote. Whilst they strove to strip from life its embroidered robes of myth, and to show in naked ugliness the foul thing that is reality, Coronis sought for beauty alone. When truth and experience failed to reveal it, he sought it in fancy and illusion, and found it on his very doorstep, amid the nebulous memories of childhood tales and dreams. There are not many persons who know what wonders are open to them in the stories and visions of their youth, for when as children we listen and dream, we think but half-formed thoughts, and when as men we try to remember, we are dulled and prosaic with the poison of life. But some of us awaken the night with strange phantasms of enchanted hills and gardens, of fountains that sing in the sun, of golden cliffs overhanging murmuring seas, of plains that stretch down to sleeping cities of bronze and stone, and of shadowy companies of heroes that ride caparisoned white horses along the edges of thick forests. And then we know that we have looked back through the ivory gates into that world of wonder which was ours before we were wise and unhappy. Coronis came very suddenly upon his old world of childhood. He had been dreaming of the house where he had been born, the great stone house covered with ivy, where thirteen generations of his ancestors had lived, and where he had hoped to die. It was moonlight, and he had stolen out into the fragrant summer night, through the gardens, down the terraces, past the great oaks of the park, and along the long white road to the village. The village seemed very old, eaten away at the edge like the moon which had commenced to wane, and Coronis wondered whether the peaked roofs of the small houses hid sleep or death. In the streets were spears of long grass, and the window panes on either side broken or infirmly staring. Coronis had not lingered, but had plodded on as though summoned towards some goal. He dared not disobey the summons for fear it might prove an illusion like the urges and aspirations of waking life, which do not lead to any goal. 
Then he had been drawn down a lane that led off from the village street toward the channel cliffs, and had come to the end of things to the precipice, and to the abyss, where all the village and all the world fell abruptly into the unechoing emptiness of infinity, and where even the sky ahead was empty and unlit by the crumbling moon and the peering stars. Faith had urged him on, over the precipice and into the gulf, where he had floated down, 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 past dark, shapeless, undreamed dreams, faintly glowing spheres that may have been partly dream dreams, and laughing winged things that seemed to mock the dreamers of all the worlds. Then a rift seemed to open in the darkness before him, and he saw the city of the valley, glistening radiantly far, far below, with a background of sea and sky, and a snow-capped mountain near the shore. Caranus had awakened the very moment he beheld the city, but he knew from his brief glance that it was none other than Selavaeus, in the valley of Uthnargai, beyond the Tenarian hills, where his spirit had dwelt all the eternity of an hour one summer afternoon very long ago, when he had slipped away from his nurse and let the warm sea-breeze lull him to sleep as he watched the clouds from the cliff near the village. He had protested then, when they had found him, waked him, and carried him home, for just as he was aroused he had been about to sail in a golden galley for those alluring regions where the sea meets the sky, and now he was equally resentful of awaking, for he had found his fabulous city after forty weary years. But three nights afterward Caranus came again to Selephaeus. As before, he dreamed first of the village that was asleep or dead, and of the abyss down which one must float silently. Then the rift appeared again, and he beheld the glittering minarets of the city, and saw the graceful galleys riding at anchor in the blue harbor, and watched the ginkgo trees of Mount Man swaying in the sea breeze. But this time he was not snatched away, and like a winged being settled gradually over a grassy hillside, till finally his feet rested gently on the turf. He had indeed come back to the valley of Uthnargai, and the splendid city of Selephaeus. Down the hill amid scented grasses and brilliant flowers walked Caranus, over the bubbling Naraxa on the small wooden bridge where he had carved his name so many years ago, and through the whispering grove to the great stone bridge by the city gate. All was as of old, nor were the marble walls discolored, nor the polished bronze statues upon them tarnished. And Caranus saw that he need not tremble lest the things he knew be vanished, for even the sentries on the ramparts were the same, and still as young he remembered them. When he entered the city, past the bronze gates and over the onyx pavements, the merchants and camel-drivers greeted him as if he'd never been away, and it was the same at the turquoise temple of Nathorthath, where the orchid-wreathed priests told him that there is no time in Uthnargai, but only perpetual youth. Then Karanis walked through the street of pillars to the seaward wall, where gathered the traders and sailors, and strange men from the regions where the sea meets the sky. There he stayed long, gazing out over the bright harbor where the ripples sparkled beneath an unknown sun, and where rode lightly the galleys from far places over the water. And he gazed also upon Mount Man rising regally from the shore, its lower slopes green with swaying trees, and its white summit touching the sky. More than ever, Caranus wished to sail in a galley to the far places of which he'd heard so many strange tales, and he sought again the captain who had agreed to carry him so long ago. He found the man, Athib, 
sitting on the same chest of spice he had sat upon before. And Athib seemed not to realize that any time had passed. Then the two rode to a galley in the harbor, and giving orders to the oarmen, commenced to sail out into the billowy Serenarian sea that leads to the sky. For several days they glided undulatingly over the water, till finally they came to the horizon, where the sea meets the sky. Here the galley paused not at all, but floated easily in the blue of the sky among fleecy clouds tinted with rose, and far beneath the keel Coronis could see the strange lands and rivers and cities of surpassing beauty, spread indolently in the sunshine which seemed never to lessen or disappear. At length Athib told him that their journey was near its end, and that they would soon enter the harbor of Serenian, the pink marble city of the clouds, which is built on that ethereal coast where the west wind flows into the sky. But as the highest of the city's carven towers came into sight, there was a sound somewhere in space, and Caranus awaked in his London garret. For many months after that, Caranus sought the marvelous city of Silophaeus and its sky-bound galleys in vain, and though his dreams carried him to many gorgeous and unheard-of places, no one whom he met could tell him how to find Uthnargai beyond the Tenarian hills. One night he went flying over dark mountains where there were faint, lone campfires at great distances apart, and strange shaggy herds with tinkling bells on the leaders. And in the wildest part of this hilly country, so remote that few men could ever have seen it, he found a hideously ancient wall or, or causeway of stone zigzagging along the ridges and valleys, too gigantic ever to have risen by human hands, and of such a length that neither end of it could be seen. Beyond that wall, in the gray dawn, he came to a land of quaint gardens and cherry trees, and when the sun rose he beheld such beauty of red and white flowers, green foliage and lawns, while paths, diamond brooks, blue lakelets, carven bridges, and red-roofed pagodas, that he for a moment forgot Celephaeus in sheer delight, but he remembered it again when he walked down a white path toward a red-roofed pagoda, and would have questioned the people of this land about it had he not found that there were no people there, but only birds and bees and butterflies. On another night Caranus walked up a damp stone spiral stairway endlessly, and came to a tower window overlooking a mighty plain and river lit by the full moon. And in the silent city that spread away from the river bank, he thought he beheld some feature or arrangement which he had known before. He would have descended, and asked the way to Uthnargai, had not a fearsome aurora sputtered up from some remote place beyond the horizon, showing the ruin and antiquity of the city, and the stagnation of the reedy river, and the death lying upon that land, as it had lain since King Kynaratholus came home from his conquest to find the vengeance of the gods. So Coronis sought fruitlessly for the marvelous city of Celephaeus and its galleys that sailed to Serenian in the sky. Meanwhile, seeing many wonders, and once barely escaping from the high priest, not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery in the cold desert plateau of Lang. In time, he grew so impatient at the bleak intervals of day that he began buying drugs in order to increase his periods of sleep. Hashish helped a great deal, and once sent him to a part of space where form does not exist, but where glowing gases study the secrets of existence, and a violet-colored gas told him that this part of space was outside what he had called infinity. The gas had not heard of planets and organisms before, 
but identified Quranist merely as one from the infinity where matter, energy, and gravitation exist. Quranis was now very anxious to return to minaret-studded Celephaeus and increased his doses of drugs, but eventually he had no more money left and could buy no drugs. Then one summer day he was turned out of his garret and wandered aimlessly through the streets, drifting over a bridge to a place where the houses grew thinner and thinner. And it was from there that fulfillment came, and he met the cortege of knights coming from Celephaeus to bear him thither forever. Handsome knights they were, astride roan horses and clad in shining armor with tabards of cloth of gold curiously emblazoned. So numerous were they, that Caranus almost mistook them for an army, but they were sent in his honor, since it was he who had created Uthnargai in his dreams, on which account he was now to be appointed its chief god for evermore. Then they gave Caranus a horse and placed him at the head of the cavalcade and all rode majestically through the downs of Surrey and onward toward the region where Caranus and his ancestors were born. It was very strange, but as the riders went on they seemed to gallop back through time, for whenever they passed through a village in the twilight they saw only such houses and villagers as Chaucer or men before him might have seen, and sometimes they saw knights on horseback with small companies of retainers. When it grew dark they traveled more swiftly, so soon they were flying uncannily as if in the air. In the dim dawn they came upon the village which Caranus had seen alive in his childhood, and asleep or dead in his dreams. It was alive now, and early villagers curtsied as the horsemen clattered down the street and turned off into the lane that ends in the abyss of dreams. Caranus had previously entered that abyss only at night, and wondered what it would look like by day, so he watched anxiously as the column approached its brink, just as they galloped up the rising ground to the precipice, a golden glare came somewhere out of the west and hid all the landscape in effulgent draperies. The abyss was a seething chaos of roseate and cerulean splendor, and invisible voices sang exultantly as the knightly entourage plunged over the edge and floated gracefully down past glittering clouds and silvery coruscations. Endlessly down the horsemen floated, their chargers pawing the ether as if galloping over golden sands and then the luminous vapors spread apart to reveal a greater brightness, the brightness of the city Celephaeus, and the sea-coast beyond, and the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily-painted galleys that sail out of the harbor toward distant regions where the sea meets the sky. And Caranus reigned thereafter over Uthnorgai and all the neighboring regions of dream, and held his court alternately in Celephaeus and in the cloud-fashioned Serenian. He reigns there still, and will reign happily forever. Though below the cliffs at Innsmouth the channel tides played mockingly with the body of a tramp who had stumbled through the half-deserted village at dawn, and cast it upon the rocks by ivy-covered Trevor Towers, where a notably fat and especially offensive millionaire brewer enjoys the purchased atmosphere of extinct nobility. Thanks for joining us for these dream stories from H.P. Lovecraft. We'll return again Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, if you enjoy our stories here at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, please do send us a review. Especially you Apple listeners, reviews help new listeners find us. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing our show with others. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.